As I was uh, studying this text this week, one phrase came to mind. Toddlers are impossible to please. And all of God's people say, Amen. We can be dismissed. That's the sermon. (laughs) Now, toddlers are impossible to please. We've been having this issue lately uh, with Ezra where he's not really eating well. And so when he wakes up from his nap, he is as grumpy as he can be. And everything he says will make him happy does not make him happy. He says he wants to sit in daddy's lap. Okay, let's sit. Let's watch some football. No, as soon as he gets in my lap, throws himself down, starts crying into my lap. And that's our existence now. So that's where we're at. And then he's like, oh, okay, I want an orange. So he points to an orange. He says he wants that. I peel it for him. I give him the orange. Turns his nose up. He's never liked oranges, he says. He's never going to eat those things. Doesn't want them at all, okay? And so I'm like, buddy, I will do anything. If you can just, just please be calm. Let's stop the crying. Let's stop the screaming. He says he wants a knack. That's his cute way of saying he wants a snack. And so I get him a knack, and he doesn't want a knack. Nothing makes him happy. Everything he says, this is what's going to do it for me. This is what's going to make me happy. If you give me this, I will be pleased. You do it, and turns out it's not actually what he wanted. They are impossible to please. And now, here's what I want to tell you. This is where it's going to start to hurt a little bit. Here's what I've learned since becoming a parent. It's how much adults can act like toddlers. A lot. Yeah? Are we still ready to say amen to that? (laughs) Adults can be just like toddlers. And we see that very clearly in this passage, don't we? I mean, if you look at this passage, you'll see that it very, uh, it continues this topic from last week. And last week we were talking about expectations and, and disappointments, right? Because John the Baptist He had all these expectations for what he thought Jesus was going to do when Jesus came. And then Jesus does not live up to John's expectations. And so what happens? Well, John is disappointed and he's frustrated. He's beginning to doubt Jesus. And what's interesting now is that Jesus begins to direct his words, not to John the Baptist and his disciples anymore, but now he's directing his words to the crowds who were there. All the crowds who are listening, and they too are disappointed. They too had all these expectations, but where John ends up being just kind of disappointed and frustrated, the crowds here are critical. They are absolutely critical of Jesus and upset because even though Jesus, God in the flesh, is literally in their midst doing some of the greatest works the world has ever seen, they reject him. I mean, do you know how rare it is to get to be part of a work of God? Do you know how few people actually get to be part of something like that? Here's their chance. God is in their midst. God is moving. God is working. And they're about to miss the moment. And it's all because Jesus isn't doing the works they wanted and He's not doing them in the way they wanted them done. And I want you to understand, church, there's a really important lesson for us here. When God is at work in our midst, we must respond quickly and appropriately or else we will miss the moment. When God is at work in our midst, we must respond quickly and appropriately or else we too will miss the moment. And so if that's what we're considering this morning and we want to talk about, you know, what do we do? How do we respond when God is clearly working and moving in our midst The question I want us to consider is, well, what is the appropriate response to God working in our midst? What is the appropriate 
response? What do we do as God's people when He is moving and working in our midst? And in order to find that out, we first have to look at the improper responses of the crowd. So notice, notice what happens here in verse 7. So as they went away, they being uh, John's disciples, they go back. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So keep this in mind. The, the crowds have just heard that John's disciples came and they were bringing this message from John talking about how John is doubting Jesus and wanting to know if he's the one. That's what they've just heard. And so they're starting to doubt John. So Jesus turns and addresses them about John. And he says, what did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. All right, so here's what I want you to imagine. Let's imagine I told you that right outside our doors, there was an Old Testament prophet. He's outside right now, okay? What are you imagining? When you open those doors, what do you expect to see if I tell you there's an Old Testament prophet out there right now? You probably start forming all sorts of ideas, right? About what he's going to look like, what he's going to sound like, how he's going to address people. Well, that's what the crowds are doing with John, because keep in mind, at this point in Israel's history, there had not been a prophet in Israel for over 400 years. Everybody who is here in this crowd has only ever read about the prophets of old. They've only ever heard about the prophets of old, but they have never actually seen a prophet. They have all these expectations, what he's going to look like, what he's going to sound like. And so they are curious about John. They go out to see John because they want to see if John matches their expectations, if the reality of a prophet will live up to their expectations of a prophet. So here's the question. What were they expecting to see when they went out there? A reed shaken by the wind? What does that mean? Well, keep in mind, many of the Old Covenant prophets were fickle people who could be easily bought or swayed by people who had power and authority. Many of you think of a prophet from the Old Testament named Balaam, right? He's a prophet of Israel, but he's literally hired by the king of Moab to go and curse the Israelites. He's a prophet for hire. He'll go and do whatever anyone tells him to do for the right price. So many Old Covenant prophets were much like modern-day politicians. They'll say whatever you want for the right price. Amen, Amen, brother. We'll have a sermon about that next year. Come back. That's what they expected to see. Someone who could be easily swayed. Someone who could be persuaded by anyone with power and authority, with money. And what do they find with John? Do they find a reed shaken by the wind? No. They find someone who will stand firm on the Word of God, who will proclaim a message that people do not want to hear, but he's going to proclaim it anyways because it is the Word of God, and it is a message from God, and it is exactly what the people need. He is not like a a reed. He is a strong tower with firm foundations. And so, That didn't match their expectations. So they thought, well, maybe we'll go and find someone in soft clothing. Because many of the old covenant prophets were buddy-buddies with kings and rulers and people in places of authority. And so they would often wear these nice clothes and get to live in king's palaces. I mean, even Daniel the prophet lived in a king's palace. So they thought, we're going to go out, we're going to find a man who looks like he should be walking next to a king. And what do they find with John? A wild man who's wearing 
just clothing of camel's hair, a belt of leather. They go and see him, and he's in the middle of dinner, which is locust and wild honey. He's eating bugs. And they're like, this is not at all what we expected to see. I mean, imagine you go out to to see someone that you expect to look like they should be walking next to a king, and instead you go out and find someone who looks like the liver king, okay? That's That's what they get with John. They had all these expectations for what a prophet should be, what he should look like, what he should sound like, and John doesn't match any of them. So what do they conclude, church? John must not be a prophet, If he were truly a prophet, then this is what he would look like. And what's interesting is Jesus says, not only is John a prophet, he says, if you can believe it, if you can accept it, he is the one of whom the scriptures prophesied about. He is the Elijah who was to come, the one who would prepare the way for the Lord, who would make his path straight. That is John. And Jesus says, not only is John the Elijah to come, he says that of those born of women, everybody, (laughs) there you go, none is greater than John. None has arisen greater than John, who was born of women. But then notice this. As quickly as he says that, what does he immediately say? But those who are least in the kingdom are even greater than John. Here's my question to you. Do you feel like you're least in the kingdom this morning? Yeah? Sometimes I feel like they keep me on the porch. That's how, like, out of it I am. But I'm in. I'm there. I feel like least in the kingdom. Maybe you do too. And Jesus says, those who are least in the kingdom, they're even greater than John. Does anyone in here feel like they're greater than John the Baptist this morning? The forerunner of the Messiah. What does that mean? How is that possible that Jesus can say that we are greater than John? Well, it's because John lived at an interesting point in human history. John lived at the transitional period between the ending of the Old Covenant and the dawning of the New Covenant. John the Baptist was the last Old Covenant believer. He was the last Old Covenant prophet. But notice this, church, the things he prophesied about, he never got to experience. John is a little bit like Moses in this regard. I mean, you remember Moses, he was telling people about the promised land constantly. He was leading them to the promised land. He was talking about what life was going to be like in the promised land. But did Moses get to go into the promised land? No. He led others there. He told them about it. But he didn't get to be a partaker in that time. When the same way, John told people about the coming of the kingdom of God and what it meant for God's people, but John ends up being murdered in that prison before he ever got to see and experience those things. John the Baptist never lived to see and experience Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. John the Baptist never got to behold Jesus' resurrection and its power in the life of a believer. John wasn't around for the giving of the Holy Spirit. But do you know who has seen all those things and benefited from them? We. 
who are least in the kingdom. That is how we can be even greater than John the Baptist. It has nothing to do with you're going to go and do more great things than John the Baptist did. God's going to raise you up and you're going to be more prominent. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that you who live today, we who live during this time, we have seen and beheld the gruesome death of Christ on the cross. We read about that in Scripture. We can see Jesus being nailed to that cross and experience His agony. Not because He had sin. It's because of our sins that He was nailed to that cross. We who are alive today have witnessed Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Does anyone in here this morning know for a fact that Jesus is alive? Amen. Of course we do. We have seen it. We have beheld His resurrection. We know the power of the resurrection and the life of a believer. And not only that, church, but we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. We, who are least in the kingdom, have become the dwelling place of God Himself. That is how we who are least are greater than John. It's because God has allowed us to behold the coming of His kingdom and be partakers in it. John talked about it, but he never got to be a partaker. He just disappointed people. You know what that's like, right? To disappoint others, that's, that's how John, he was disappointing everybody. Well, they had all these expectations and he didn't live up to them. So they said he must not really be a, a prophet. He must not be a man of God. And I don't want you to miss what's going on here. As we're studying this passage, please focus on this, okay? God is clearly at work in their midst, right? God has sent them John. God has sent them Jesus. Jesus is doing great things. John is doing great things. And everybody who is seeing God clearly at work is rejecting that work of God because it does not live up to their expectations. And so notice what Jesus says about this crowd. This is great. This is my favorite part of the whole passage, by the way. Look at verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? So Jesus said, hey, I'm going to defend John. That's my cousin. He's the forerunner, the Messiah. I'm going to defend him. He's a a prophet. He's the Elijah to come. That's John. But what do I need to say about you? To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Don't you just love Jesus? I mean, he's the best, isn't he? He's such a good teacher. This is so good. He uses this little cutesy story that on the surface seems pretty harmless, right? It's just a little cutesy story about some kids playing in the marketplace. But he's using this story to tell the crowds that they're a bunch of hard-headed, stubborn people who refuse to be pleased with anything, which is great, right? You know, what, what does this little cutesy story have to do with anything? He says they're like children, Right, so they're, they're like children, and they say they want to play. All right, everybody tracking? They want to play games. Let's go and play something. So their friends are like, all right, hey, what if we play wedding? Let's play wedding, and we'll, we'll play a wedding tune, and we'll dance, and everybody will have a good time. So they're like, okay. So they play the wedding tune, and then the children are like, nah, I don't want to do that. I don't feel like playing wedding today. I don't really want to dance. Never been big on music. 
It's like, that's fine. Okay, no, no worries. You don't want to play a wedding. You're in a somber mood. Let's play funeral instead. And we'll play a funeral tune. We'll play you a dirge. And you can mourn and be sad all you want. And so that's what they do. And then the children are like, nah. I don't really want to do that either. I don't really feel like playing anything, any of those games. Even though they're the ones who said they wanted to play. Are we seeing that, right? Notice this. They say we want to play games, but no matter what the game is, they don't want to play the game. Who are they like? Church? Toddlers. Ezra. Okay, well, (laughs) there was no reason to name names there. He's cute, though, so he gets away with it. But they're like toddlers, right? They're impossible to please. And and so the question is, well, what does this cutesy little story have to do with anything? And Jesus is saying that this is exactly how the people of Israel responded to God working in their midst. That they were refusing to be pleased by anything God was doing. How so? Well, they said, we want a prophet. So God sends them John. And they reject John. They said, we want the Messiah to come. Send us the Messiah. So God sends his only son, Jesus, the Messiah. And they say, we don't want him. They reject Jesus. I mean, they're picky about absolutely everything. Notice this here. John was an ascetic who lived a bizarre lifestyle and preached a harsh harsh message of judgment. And the people look at him and they go, he's a crazy person. He's got to have a demon. Look at him. He's barely wearing anything and he's eating bugs. That guy can't be from God. That, that, That was John, right? Kind of a weird lifestyle, harsh message. And they said, nah, we don't want him. And so God says, all right, well, here's Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Pretty much the exact opposite. He doesn't live a weird lifestyle. In fact, Jesus is hanging out with sinners, tax collectors, having meals with them. Jesus is turning water into wine and going to parties. He's hanging out with the people that others rejected. And and he's, he's doing all these things. And he's preaching a message of mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. And the people look at him and they go, well, he's a glutton and a drunk. I mean, do you see this? They refused to be pleased with either situation. They didn't want the crazy lifestyle with the harsh message, and they don't want the normal lifestyle with the loving message, and they say, we just don't want God working in our midst. Now, it's not actually what they said, but it's what their hearts were saying. God was clearly moving and at work in their midst, and they refused to be pleased by any of that. They reject everything God is doing. And so Jesus says, well, hey, listen, wisdom is justified by her deeds. And that word justified, it just means proven right. And so what Jesus is saying, in other words, he's saying they may not like what God is doing. It may not be what they want God to do or how they want God to do it. And they may reject his work in their midst. But notice this, church, God's ways will be proven right in the end. You don't have to like what he's doing. You can reject what he's doing, but everything God does will be proven right in the end. His ways are always right, not our ways. And so we see in the crowd this wrong response to to what we're supposed to do when God's working in our midst. They reject God and his work. But I want you to understand this. When God is at work in our midst, we must get on board even if his ways go against our preferences. 
when God is at work in our midst, we must get on board even if His ways go against our preferences. That one's harder to say amen to. I get it, because we're in church. said that last week. We want our preferences to be met, right? We, we have certain things that we like. We want things to be a certain way. We want our church to be run a certain way and look a certain way and do certain things. But none of that actually matters unless God is at work in your midst. And if he is at work in your midst, then your preferences don't actually matter. Insistence upon your own preferences and your own ways will kill a church and God's work in that church. I know this to be true because uh, I know of a church right now where it's happening. I've seen it happen before. The, The situation that's going on now, I would not even believe it was real if I had not been part of it for the past four years. It's a church where my buddy is the pastor. You see, my buddy, uh, he's the pastor of this church, and about four years ago, they had about a hundred or so people when they called him to be the pastor. And so God began to work in a, in a mighty way in their midst. I mean, God began to just pour out blessings upon blessings upon blessings. Ended up, in the past four years, uh, God had grown their numbers to about 300. So within four years, they had gained about 200 or so people. But not only that, in the past four years, God has been moving in such a mighty way that they have celebrated 80 salvations and baptisms in four years. I mean, we, we, we would praise God for that, would we not? This is an amazing work of God. I mean, there hadn't been a baptism like that in that church for probably two or three years before that. God had just been pouring out all of these blessings. You would think if I was part of that church, I'd be praising God. Because clearly, from an outside perspective, can we see God's moving in that church? The numbers have grown, salvations have gone up, baptisms have gone up. The people should be praising God. But the problem is God was not working in the way that the church wanted God to work. They tried to put God in a box. Because God was leading my buddy to do things differently than they had ever done there at the church. And oh boy... (laughs) People did not like that. I know you can't imagine that, but if you could for like a second, imagine a world where church people like their own ways and not other people's ways, okay? So that's what was happening. And so they started insisting upon their own preferences. They started fights to get their own way, even a fist fight in the parking lot. Literally a fist fight in the parking lot that my buddy, the pastor, had to break up. They started talking behind closed doors, creating factions and and arguing and fighting in meetings. They started insisting upon their own preferences and that the pastor and the church do things in their way. And you know what happened? They ran off every single new person who has come to that church in the past four years, plus some who were already there. They ran off the pastor. My buddy is about to leave in the next two weeks to start pastoring another church. And the church is now back to less people than they had four years ago. They missed the moment. God was at work in their midst. He was moving and blessing and pouring out all of His blessings in a mighty way. 
But because they insisted upon their own preferences, because they cared more about their own preferences than what God was doing, they missed the moment. And I don't know what's going to happen to that church now. But this is exactly what can happen when we reject what God is doing because we prefer that God do it in our way. I want you to listen to me, church. To be part of a work and movement of God is the greatest thing on earth. There is nothing else like it on earth. When God is at work in a mighty way in a church, that's where you want to be. When the Spirit is moving, don't get in His way. Let Him work. No, it might not be how you want it to be. It might look differently than you thought it was going to look. Your preferences might not be met, but wisdom is proven right by her deeds. In other words, if God is moving and working, then it does not matter if our preferences are being met. What matters is God is blessing and His name is being glorified. The gospel is being preached. People are being discipled. The lost are being saved. The kingdom of God is growing. That's what matters. Not my personal preferences being met. We need to get on board and praise God and just be thankful that He has even allowed us to be part of a work of God here on earth. If God is clearly at work and doing great things in a church, but you can't rejoice and praise God for that, then it means you care more about your own preferences than you do about the work of God here on earth. Are you willing to put your pride and your preferences aside and rejoice in what God is doing? Or will you be like the crowds here and reject His mighty works? Woe to those who see the great work of God in their lives and refuse to respond appropriately. You might be thinking, Pastor, that's Old Testament language. Why are you saying woe? You shouldn't be doing that. That's what Jesus says next, so that's why. Notice what he says there in verses 20 to 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities. This really combats this whole idea that Jesus was just always tender and kind and loving. If you were more like Jesus, you would just be nice and loving all the time. Jesus begins to pronounce Old Testament style woes on these cities who saw the work of God and refused to do anything about it. The cities where most of His mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heavens? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, why is that the case? It's because these three cities were the three cities in which Jesus had done the overwhelming majority of his miracles. These are the cities who had witnessed firsthand the mighty work of God in their midst. They had seen what God was doing. They had beheld it. They had witnessed it. But they were completely indifferent. They witnessed it from afar. They stood by on the sidelines and refused to actually respond. 
They refused to repent and obey the voice of God. They refused to do anything. They were content to witness what God was doing from afar and remain completely indifferent to it. And notice that Jesus is holding them accountable for their failure to act on what they know. You have to understand something, church, that that with the increased knowledge comes increased accountability and responsibility. Jesus is holding them accountable for what they know because with that increased knowledge comes increased accountability and responsibility. You know, we've been talking about kids a lot today. You can think about kids again for this one. My oldest son, Judah, knows that it's wrong to hit other people. But he has a little brother now. And as soon as Ezzy got old enough to start swinging those arms, he hit Judah. It was an accident. It was not intentional. He's just moving his arms about because Ezzy is a crazy person and you can't trust him. So just beware that smile, all right? But he's doing all that and uh, he hits Judah. So what do you think Judah did? Popped him back. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let him know who the older brother was. And I told Ezzy, no, no, but I really got on to Judah. I mean, I, I really got on to him. And I said, buddy, you know that it's wrong to hit. And his response to me was, well, Ezzy hit me first. I said, yeah, but that doesn't matter. Ezzy's a baby. He doesn't know any better. He doesn't even know that he hit you. He's just moving whatever he can. I said, but you do know that it's wrong to hit. And you chose to do so anyways. And so you're the one who's in trouble because you knew what was right and wrong and you chose wrong. With that increased knowledge, you have increased accountability and responsibility. So here's what I want us to understand this morning, church. When God is at work in our midst, we must repent and obey because we will be held accountable for how we respond. We must repent and obey because we will be held accountable for how we respond or how we fail to respond. Here's what I want you to consider this morning. How are you responding to the great work of God that He is doing in our midst? Are you angry like the crowds or are you indifferent like the cities? You see, we have many people who sit here week after week after week and you refuse to repent and respond. Just like these cities here. You know that you're living in sin, but it has a grip on your heart and on your desires. You feel like you're enchained to it and there's nothing that you can do to free yourself from it. And even though you have clearly heard the invitation to come and be freed in Christ, to let Him free you from the bondage of sin, you sit there content to remain in your sin because you refuse to admit that deep down the reason you will not come to Christ is because you love your sin more than Christ. You've heard God proclaim that it is a sin. You've heard Him condemn it week after week through the preaching of His Word. You know that it's wrong, but you refuse to respond and obey the voice of God. And Jesus says here, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you who refuse to repent. There are many who see the mighty ways that God is moving in our midst here in this church, but you continue to be as indifferent as these cities and sit on the sidelines. You know that you have next steps that you need to take. You know that you need to step up and get involved, but you sit there. 
You're as indifferent as Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. I mean, you know of many of the, the great things that God has done in our midst this year just in terms of missions activities alone. I mean, we're going to be talking about some of that on Wednesday and praising God for how much God has allowed us to do for missions this year. Here's my question. How much of that were you actually involved in? It's something for you to hear about what God is doing. But are you actually involved in it? Are you a part of it? I mean, you've heard about how our people are growing closer together through gospel groups and closer to the Lord and these relationships are being formed and deepened and and bonds are being made. But where are you? Are you there for that? How how long are you going to just sit and listen to what God is doing before you actually get involved in what God is doing? I mean, you, you might sit here and you might say, Pastor, I know prayer is important. And you know for a fact that we have an extended time of prayer every single Wednesday. Every request that is made on a Wednesday night, we pray for it, don't we, Wednesday nighters? Every single one in this church. We pray. We spend time sharing our concerns with the Lord, studying His Word together. Where are you? Are you part of that? Are you content to just hear about what God is doing or do you want to actually be involved in what God is doing in our midst? I think worst of all, there are many here who are as angry as the crowds and as indifferent as these cities because even though you clearly see that God is working in our midst, that God is blessing, that He has been pouring out His blessings for years now, God is not doing it in your way. And you cannot rejoice because of it. Here's what I want to tell you this morning. From my heart as your pastor, don't miss the moment. So many churches do. So many people do. The crowds did here. The cities did here. Don't miss the moment. Don't miss out on the great work of God. Because we don't know how long God's going to be moving and blessing like this, do we, church? He could stop today. He could stop tomorrow. All we have is right now, is this moment. And if we will not repent and obey the voice of God, we're going to miss it. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't insist upon your own ways and your own preferences. Rejoice that God is pleased to move in our midst in a powerful way. Don't create division where the Spirit has created unity. Don't reject the work of God or remain indifferent to the work of God. Instead, when God is moving in our midst, we must repent and obey and get involved. Otherwise, we're going to miss the moment. Will you respond to His voice today? Let's go to God in prayer.